Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Here we are at church. Fantastic. It is so good to have you here. My name is James. I'm senior pastor here at OCC. We're glad you're joining us, whether that's here in the room, if you're choosing to join online, we're glad either way. But if you have your Bible, grab that. We're going to study together today. Walking through the Gospel of Luke together, we're going to be in chapter 20, looking specifically at verses 27 to 40. It's a pretty tough passage. This is one of those when you preach expositionally the way we do, kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse, you're excited about falling into passages like this because you won't probably hear this preached in a church that preaches topically. They would avoid this passage because it's pretty tough. But we're going to dive in because God's word never returns void, and this is where he's leading us. This is the time for this today. So we're going to find this passage where Jesus confronts a group of people about their doctrine, right? Is that a word that we hear? We hear it pretty often in the church. Doctrine's not that scary a concept. It's just your beliefs. It's a belief or a set of beliefs that guide how you operate. And the church is not the only group that has doctrine. Governments have doctrine. Political parties have doctrine. Fortune 500 companies have doctrine. Small businesses have doctrine. All those doctrines guide how those organizations are going to provide the services they do. And the, and the difference is all those other organizations can have a healthy dialogue about what the best way to, to practice their doctrine is. They can try and find the best practices. The church doesn't really get to have that debate. The church is led by God's word, period. So we have to adhere to that if we want to be a Christ-honoring church. And so there's no loopholes. There's certainly not supposed to be in obeying biblical doctrine. Problem is we're fallen people and we like to look for loopholes, don't we? <laughs> Hear about the family. There's a mom and a dad and they had three children. They had an older brother named Billy and a younger brother named Bobby and one little sister sandwiched in between named Betty. One day Bobby snuck into Billy's room. Younger brother snuck into the older brother's room, stole one of his favorite toys, and he went out to play with it in the yard. Well, Billy goes into his room later, and he finds this toy is missing, and sure enough, he goes out in the yard, and there's Bobby playing with it, and Billy is mad. He's hopping mad. So it's the first thing he does. He reaches down in the landscaping, and he picks up a rock, and he's going to chuck it at his brother's head, right? And his dad, thankfully, was watching out the window, and he sees all this, and so he runs out. He's like, hey, 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 what are you doing? He's like, well, Bobby stole my toy. I'm going to chuck this rock at his head. He's like, no. And, and being a solid Christ-following father, he said, don't you know that he who is without sin can throw the first stone? Have you ever sinned against Bobby? Have you ever sinned against your brother? Have you ever taken any of his toys? Now, Billy was stuck, right? He drops the rock. He goes, I have taken some of Bobby's toys before I have sinned against my brother. And so he walks away. Dad was pretty pleased with himself, right? So he goes inside, and he doesn't see the brothers again until it's time for dinner a couple hours later, and everybody shows up at the dinner table, and Bobby shows up, and he's got this big, huge goose egg on his head, this big bloody knot on his head, and Dad freaks. He's like, what happened? And he turns to Bobby. He goes, did your brother go ahead and throw a rock at you? Even after I told him he was without sin, throw the first stone? And at that, sweet little Betty piped up, and she goes, actually... <laughs> What had happened was, Billy came to me and he said, hey, have you ever sinned against Bobby? And I said, I didn't think I had. He goes, have you ever sinned against me? And I said, I don't think I had. So he gave me five bucks and I threw a rock at Bobby. <laughs> so Billy thought he found a loophole, right? <laughs> 
Loopholes are not how doctrine is supposed to work in God's economy. In the church, we're supposed to adhere to our doctrinal belief. Why? Because obedience to God's word is going to be the path that leads us to abundance. Obedience is the path that leads us to God's blessing. We need to obey. We need to follow even the hard doctrines in the Bible. I would say especially the hard doctrines in the Bible. Because when we obey, that's where the joy is. That's where the life is. That's where the peace is. That's where the abundance is. And we're not going to find that in taking shortcuts. We're not going to find those things in loopholes. Now, with all that being said, let's be honest, none of us can be first stone throwers, right? None of us are without sin. Every single person sitting here, everybody watching online, we struggle with our sin nature. And that makes following God's set of beliefs very hard at times, especially if you're fearfully and wonderfully made to have a bent towards a certain sin. You might be drawn to a particular sin or struggle with that sin. I understand this all too well. I struggle mightily with addiction issues. And because of my addiction issues, I have to make certain choices in my life. Here's one. I don't gamble because I understand my addiction issues. I know that's a slippery slope for me. I, don't, I, I joke about winning the lottery all the time. I don't buy lottery tickets because I know how dangerous that is. I'm never going to win the lottery, right? I struggle mightily with food. I struggle with my weight. I've never eaten one cookie in my life. I don't know how. If I eat one cookie, I eat the whole bag. And my family knows this is true, right? I, and this is why, honestly, I, and you guys have heard my story, I don't drink alcohol anymore. Even though I'm way past the legal limit, it's not a problem. The Bible doesn't say I can't have a drink. I'm over 21, but I don't drink. Why? Because I haven't proven consistently that I can have one drink or a couple drinks. I can't do that. In the past, when I drank, I drank till I got drunk. And the Bible very specifically says I'm not supposed to get drunk. Paul makes this crystal clear. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. And do not get drunk with wine. Why, Paul? For that is dissipation. Instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk. That's not just with wine. That was just the most common alcoholic drink at the time. Paul's saying don't get drunk on anything. Why not? Because that's dissipation. Your translation may say debauchery, but that notion is when we're controlled by alcohol, we are very, very likely to do or say things that we would not do when we're sober. And I don't think anybody sitting here has to wonder if that's true. I, I bet almost every person listening to this message knows that's a true statement. I had a buddy of mine I hung out with back when I was a, a practicing alcoholic. He said, there's four stages of being drunk. He says, in stage one, you think you're funny. In stage two, you think you're good looking. Stage three, you think you're bulletproof. And stage four, you think you're invisible, right? And it's supposed to be funny. I get it, but it's, it's not. It's honestly sad because I've been there. I, I know people who are controlled by alcohol will say and do things they wouldn't do if they were in their right mind. And that's why Paul says don't get drunk. Don't be filled up with that kind of feeling. Don't be controlled by that where you think you're funny or good looking or invisible. Instead, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit be your guide because then you are much less likely to say something that you would not say or do when you were sober. I get that. It's just a reality. Now, now here's another reality. I know that verse from Ephesians. I became a Christ follower and then for three years after that, I still really struggled with this core doctrinal belief. I fought for that with that for a while, a long while, until God in his complete mercy took alcohol away from me. I pray often that he would take peanut butter from me in the same way, and yet there I am in the kitchen at midnight eating peanut butter out of the jar with a spoon. My family knows that one too. 
I know the biblical teaching. It's tough, right? Doctrine is hard. And so talking about doctrine gets a bad rap. Now, if you want to talk about doctrine, there's this real heavy tone, like anytime you have a doctrinal discussion, it's this negative feeling. Because people who hold fast to biblical doctrine, well, they're difficult, they're divisive. That's how we view those people. Well, they just want to be right. They're not very loving. I want to plead with you today. I don't think that's supposed to be the case. I think many people who hold fast to biblical doctrines, especially in the face of opposition, are trying to be the kindest, most loving people they can possibly be. Many people. Now, I'll admit, not all people, right? Some people are looking for a fight. Some people are doctrinally legalistic. I don't know that they want the best for others. But many people do. The problem is we wade into these conversations and the people we're dealing with, they don't want to hear the message. Why? Because we're sinful. We just want to do what we want to do. We're looking to pay somebody to throw the first stone for us, right? We're looking for a loophole to have to avoid agreeing with biblical doctrine. I found myself in this spot many times because as a pastor, I get to do a lot of pastoral counseling. I've counseled a lot of people who struggle with same-sex attraction. And I found a few people who were willing to talk about the very real struggle that exists there for someone who does experience that same-sex attraction. But I found a lot of people also want to tell me they struggle with same-sex attraction because God made them that way. And because God made them that way and God loves them, they should be able to engage in their attraction because that's just how they're wired. And I struggle with that because I don't believe the Bible supports that. And so when I try to, as lovingly as I can, present the truth from God's word to these people who openly want to practice their same-sex attraction, that winds up creating some conflict. But here's where I got to stand. God's word addresses that issue. There's real inspired scripture. Paul mentions this in Romans chapter one. We can look at this together. He's talking about people who trade God's truth for a lie. They're trading God's truth for a lie that makes them feel good. And it manifests itself this way. It says, for this reason, because they traded truth for a lie, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This is not the focus of our sermon today. I'm just going to throw this in free of charge. If we're going to have an honest discussion with somebody about what the Bible teaches about sexuality, we got to do it right. We have to address the difference between actual behavior versus inclination. This is that bent that I spoke about earlier. Because again, I know people personally who by their own admission struggle with same-sex attraction. They do feel that they're bent that way same way I am towards addiction issues, the way I am towards anger issues. They're bent towards same-sex attraction, and they do not act on that inclination. And so that bent for them, hear me on this, is not a sin. Bible never teaches us that temptation is a sin. It's when we act on our temptations that sin arises. James explains this very plainly. James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when? When he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, when we give in, when we act on our desires, and we do what we want to do, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So being tempted, having a stronghold like the Rooted study talks about, that's not a sin acting on that temptation is. 
And so when I get the chance to talk with people about issues like this, I almost always play out the scenario that God has allowed in my life. And I say, hey, well, since God fearfully and wonderfully made me with this bent towards addiction issues, shouldn't I be able to be drunk whenever I want? Because that's how God made me? Because I'm bent towards addiction? Is it okay for me to drive drunk? Potentially kill myself or other people? Is it okay for me to say things and do things that hurt other people when I'm drunk? Because that's how I'm wired? Or do I have to choose to die to myself in that area? Because I know that God's word says being drunk is wrong. If we're talking to somebody who has anger issues and they lash out at people, they yell at people, they want to abuse people, they want to hurt people, they want to kill people, what are we going to say? Well, that's okay because you're bent towards anger. Would we ever say that? (laughs) Or would we say, no, you need to die to yourself. You need to not act on those impulses. Because honestly, Scripture tells us it's okay to be angry. There are going to be times in this life where we should be righteously angry. But God's word also clearly tells us this, Ephesians 4, verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. We catch that? Be angry and do not sin. Do not the sun go down on your anger. So church, do we get this? There are these serious doctrinal issues that are going to play out in our lives. How are we going to lovingly address someone with addiction issues? How are we going to lovingly address someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, struggles with anger issues, any of the myriad of things that come up in the Bible? How are we going to do that? These ways that sin manifests itself in our lives that the Bible deals with. Should we just ignore having those hard conversations because we know that's going to be tough if we dive into that pool? I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. I think we have to be willing to take a stand and address doctrinal error. That's what Jesus does in this passage. I think all Christ followers should be willing to do that. I know specifically as a leader in the church, I am called to do that. And I'll just tell you honestly, that's been hard for me because I know there are people who do not like me anymore. I know there are people who hate me, honestly, because I took a stand on God's word in these doctrinal discussions. Because here's the deal. Even though it didn't feel like it for them, I know that's the most loving place to stand. I get that it doesn't feel loving, I've got four children, and I was blessed in this way. Sometimes I had to tell my kids things that were hard for them to hear because it was the most loving thing. If I saw my kids playing in the street, I couldn't tell them, oh, look how cute that is. I'd say, hey, get out of the street. What are you, idiot? Come on. Car's going to run over you. Does that sound loving? I probably didn't call them idiots, right? If I saw my kids and one of them was going to chuck a rock at the other, I didn't say, hey, pay your sister to do that. That wasn't a real story, by the way. That wasn't our family. I didn't, I didn't change the names to protect the innocent, just so you know that. But, but, but that's the idea, right? Sometimes we have to tell people we love hard things. Why? Because we love them so much. We willing to do that as Christ followers? With the people that God puts in our path? Lots of people don't want to do that. I've heard this many times. Well, that person struggles with that particular issue, and so let's not address it. I think the best thing to do is just love them. Yes, (laughs) let's do that, but I think you and I are talking about two different things. I'm not talking about holding hands with them and singing kumbaya and having this warm, fuzzy feeling about Jesus. I'm talking about loving them in spirit and in truth. You're talking about elevating tolerance. If you have discussions like that, they're going to wind up in division anyway. Major denominations in this world, across the world, have split over doctrinal differences where one side emphasizes tolerance and the other side emphasizes truth and love. Now, I'll admit, easily, this is a tough issue. 
But here's where it is so tough. I don't think as the local church we should ever turn our back on people who struggle with sin issues. Because guess what? We could have jackets made. Every one of us struggles with sin issues. So we're not supposed to shun people. We're supposed to invite them to church. We're supposed to teach them the truth of the gospel. We're supposed to show them love, not turn those people away. Now here's the deal. We might have to address specific issues in specific ways to make sure everyone in the body does feel loved and cared for and safe. But we're supposed to present the truth of God's gospel to everybody we run into because we're all sinners in need of a savior. This is what we're going to address today. You were wondering if we're ever going to get to this passage in Luke. We are, I promise. But, but if we don't address doctrinal error, if we just elevate tolerance, and we take a soft stance on these key doctrinal issues, we're not going to be doing ministry like Jesus. Here in this passage today, Jesus is going to be in conflict with some of the religious leaders of his day. There's a group called the Sadducees. And they were a group who denied bodily resurrection. They denied resurrection, and they also didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They, they had some kind of strange beliefs. We can actually correlate some scripture in Luke's sequel to this, the book of Acts. He explains it, Acts chapter 23, verse 8. He says, the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. I love this. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Here are these two groups that were together. The Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed. For sure, Jesus and the Sadducees disagreed. But what we're not going to see is Jesus come along and go, ah, oh, it's okay, guys, we disagree. That's fine. We're, we're all Jews. We all read the same scripture. We're just interpreting it different ways. You say there's no resurrection. I say there is. <laughs> Isn't that funny? We, we, we can agree to disagree. No, that's not what they said. Jesus comes along, and, and for sure we're going to see when confronted with this doctrinal question, he intentionally and clearly and lovingly confronts the error. Why? Because that's the thing he instructs us to do. Okay, lots of application here to start. All this to say, sound doctrine is super important. It matters strongly to Jesus. It should matter strongly to us. It's the first point on your outline. Let's dive into this passage, address this doctrinal question that the Sadducees have. We'll have this on the screens. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27. Luke records, now there came to Jesus some of the Sadducees. Again, this is the group who says there's no resurrection. And they questioned him saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. And now they throw in this hypothetical situation. They just want to test Jesus. Verse 29. Now there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died childless and the second and third married her and in the same way all seven died leaving no children. Finally the woman died also. Verse 33, in the resurrection, therefore, again, remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. <laughs> They're just trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to trap him, right? Good luck with that. In the resurrection, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Now, let me just say this. We don't know a ton about the Sadducees. We could do a comprehensive study. We're not going to learn a bunch about them. We don't discover the origin of the group, the origin of their name. We do know they were mostly very well-educated. They were kind of upper class they were super rationalistic, and they were very religiously conservative. And they held that the supreme authority of the Torah, sometimes you hear it called the Pentateuch, it's the first five books of the Bible, ones that God inspired Moses to write down. That was their deal. They were Torah fanatics. And so they rejected a lot of the stuff that came after. For sure, all the oral tradition of the rabbis. 
And we do know from correlating scripture, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels or spirits. Now, Jesus is God. He knows exactly what they believe and what they don't believe, right? And here they come to try and trip him up with this doctrinal question. And Jesus doesn't say, well, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you sincerely believe it, right? Because we can sincerely believe something and be sincerely wrong. Doesn't hit him with that great nugget we hear so often today. Well, let's just agree to disagree. He doesn't say that. He says, no, you guys are wrong. And let me explain why. And this is the part that we're going to struggle with, church. This is the part that's hard for us today in applying this. Because when we're defending our doctrinal position, we're going to defend it from God's word, and some people will not accept God's word. They don't believe in the Bible. They think that's just an opinion. They don't see it as genuine truth. Of course, you'll also argue with some people who think that all truth is relative. So they can have their version of the truth, and you can have your version of the truth, and they can both be right. My version of the truth is tied to God's version of the truth. I believe that's true. So the situation likely is going to occur when we take a biblical stand. But we still need to be ready to take that stand. And I know this not because I'm making it up, but because Scripture teaches me this. For sure all elders to do it are supposed to do it, all leaders in the church. Paul shares this in Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. And this applies to our staff here at the church, our ministry council, those kind of guys. We need to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. What does that mean? The things we see in the Bible that we know are true, we're supposed to hold fast. Why? So that we will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine, to teach sound doctrine, and, you catch this, to refute those who contradict. So it's not enough for me to stand up here and study a passage in the Bible and teach it and go, I think that's true, because if somebody comes along and they say something that I know is not true, I can't go, la, 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 I didn't hear that, I don't know what you're saying, I'm going to focus on this thing, right? Because I heard the other thing. <laughs> if I'm aware of that doctrinal error, I have to address it. I have to point to what God's word teaches, not what I like or not what I think is true. Now, praise the Lord, God's word also gives us a guide for how we're supposed to do that. So we don't have to make that part up either. Paul instructs his disciple Timothy in this way, and this is a passage aimed at leaders in the church. He says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. That give us a heads up how we're supposed to do this. But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Gentleness, why? If perhaps God may grant them repentance. Who's he granting repentance to? The people who are in opposition to God's word. If we come in guns blazing quarrelsome, are they going to listen to us? No. If we come in gentle, God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So there's the model for us, right? And let's be honest on this. There's some issues where it's okay to disagree. There really are. There's some doctrinal issues where there's absolutely no wiggle room. We know that's true as well. You've heard this one from me probably countless times as this is your church. Salvation is by grace through faith, period. Amen? It's by God's grace. It's through faith in Jesus, period. There's no wiggle room there. So if we run into somebody who goes, well, I'm pretty sure I can earn my way into heaven. Uh-uh-uh. That's a doctrinal issue that we have to stand on, right? But I've had this discussion many times. Hey, I believe the earth is 6,000 years old. Hey, I believe the earth is 6 billion years old. Okay, let's talk. I tend to lean one way. I think scripture supports one way, but that's not a salvation issue. We can have that discussion. That'd be kind of fun. Somebody comes up to me and denies that Jesus is God. 
They deny that he's part of the Trinity. Got to rise up. Have to take a stand there. Someone comes to me and they have a differing view on when the rapture will occur in regards to tribulation. Again, I've got a pretty strong opinion there. I think it's supported by scripture, but I'm willing to have that discussion about the other theories. There are areas in Christendom where there's some latitude. Now, sadly, I've run into some people who want to make every issue a big debate, and all they really want to do is prove themselves right. <laughs> they just want to show off their knowledge. Again, I would say for being right's sake, that's something they need to talk to Jesus about. But bottom line is, there are some doctrinal issues that have to be foundational. There are some core issues, and Jesus is going to address one in this passage. Resurrection is a pretty big deal. Why? Because if God is raising people from the dead and we deny that, if by the power of the Holy Spirit he's raising people from the dead and we say that's not true, we're denying his faithfulness as a covenant keeper. Because he made a whole lot of promises to a whole lot of Old Testament heroes that didn't come true while they were still alive. Believing in resurrection means more than just believing Christ was resurrected, right? It's our belief that everyone we know who professed faith will be resurrected. We're all going to get to spend eternity with him in heaven. We know that as Christ followers. Sadducees didn't know that. And the part that gets a little weird is both Jesus and the Sadducees held to this authority of Scripture, but the Sadducees had a much smaller scope, right? It was just those first five books they were trusted in. We know this because they quote Moses in their question. And I think it's a really nice nod because Jesus in response, he throws him a bone and he quotes Moses as well. But the truth is, the Sadducees come into this with some wrong assumptions. Because they were rationalistic, because they couldn't wrap their mind around this idea of people having a true resurrection, where we get a new body, a new life in Christ. In heaven, we're going to be like Jesus, right? We're going to be sinless. We're going to know things. We're going to be fully known. They couldn't wrap their minds around that. And so they proposed this really hypothetical situation to make Jesus look bad. They did know this Old Testament principle of Leverite marriage. That's not something we do anymore. But that was really common back in, in the day. If the first brother would die and he was childless, another brother would step in and marry that lady. They were trying to preserve the family name. It's an odd concept for us, but that's what they did. And so he played out this hypothetical to an extreme. The Sadducees come with this scenario with seven brothers who die. I don't know what kind of occupation these guys, they must have been race car drivers or something. But every, everyone, that's <laughs> a hazardous occupation, right? So every one of them dies. They get married. They don't have kids. They die. Another brother steps in. He gets married. He dies. And so the question is, after this poor lady who got married seven times dies, in the afterlife, is this lady going to have seven husbands? Or is she just going to have one? Going to be the first one? It's the one she loves the most? Which way, how does this work, right? And it's a trick question. Because they don't believe in the resurrection anyway. And so what does Jesus do? He tries to correct their error. He's going to paint the actual picture for them. And in doing so, he actually is going to explain a little bit about what heaven is going to look like for us. And that's helpful. But this is going to be challenging for the Sadducees. Because not only do they not grasp the biblical resurrection idea, they don't believe in angels either. And Jesus says we're going to be like angels. We're not going to be angels. We're going to be like angels. He gives a few of those respects. In heaven, we're not going to marry, right? We're also not going to die, and we're not going to sin. Our resurrected bodies will be immortal. That's neat to know, but it presents us with some challenges as well. So follow along. This is Jesus, how he corrected them, starting in verse 34. 
says to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. We still do that today. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age of the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they're like angels. They're sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, this isn't going to burn them, in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. That last part just blows their minds. But, but seriously, this whole answer is going to be tough for them to take. But I love this nod. In heaven, it says Christ followers are more than sons of God. We're more than children of God. That happens in this life. That happens the second we profess faith, we become sons and daughters of God. In heaven, we're going to be sons of the resurrection, which is a little different, right? And I'll admit, I don't fully understand this picture. A lot of people I know struggle with this passage because we enjoy being married here on earth and we'd like to be married in heaven, right? We, we understand that. I scored. I can't believe I got a woman as hot as my wife to marry me. I'd love to be married in heaven, right? But that's not the way it works. I love being married. I love my children. Being married is like my favorite thing. So this notion of not having that type of relationship in heaven, it's one of the things that sadly makes me want to hang around here and this place has fallen. But, but I get it. I know it. I just don't totally get it, right? I don't totally understand it. But in my head, I know being with Jesus forever, that's going to be better than being married. But I can't totally grasp it. Now, here's the thing that I do understand. I believe that the one flesh relationship we get, the marriage covenant we make here on earth, that's probably the closest picture we're going to see on this planet of what our relationship with God is supposed to look like when we do it right. Sadly, we're sinful people. We live in a fallen world. But, but when husbands and wives do marriage right, when we die to ourselves, when husbands sacrifice for their wives the way they're supposed to, and wives see that sacrifice and they're blown away by it and they respect their husbands. That's as close to heaven on earth as we are going to get. Amen? Do we do that well? No. And these roles, they're not supposed to be conditional. Husbands are supposed to sacrifice for their wives even if their wives don't respect them. Wives are supposed to respect their husbands even if he doesn't sacrifice for you. It's our fallenness that tarnishes this picture. But that broken picture should make us long to be in heaven where we're going to get this right. Back to the heart of the passage, the Sadducees didn't have that ability to think beyond the things that they understood, right? They're rationalists. So anything that elevated beyond human reasoning was lost on them. They could not comprehend this idea that God had the power to raise people from the dead. So they just believed it wasn't real. So he confronts their doctrinal error in verses 37 and 38, and to help him out, he uses an example from Moses, because that would really resonate with them. And he just point blank says, well, God is the father of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob. He's the God of the living. Well, what do we know about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at this point in time? They'd been dead for a long time. <laughs> they were dead when Moses wrote those words. So God is not the God of people who cease to exist once they die. He's the God of people who are resurrected and spend eternity with him in heaven. That's the point Jesus is making. So in confronting these Sadducees, he's trying to explain, you can't be in opposition to God's word and say you're on team God, right? We can't be in opposition to Jesus and say we submit to Christ. Those things don't coincide. 
Can't say we're on one team and then not believe the doctrinal statement that that team presents. And for sure, here in Luke 20, these Sadducees are not trying to submit to Jesus. They're trying to publicly humiliate him. They sincerely believe they're right, so what does that mean? Jesus is wrong. Now, that's not the answer they publicly give Jesus, okay? And honestly, I don't think the Sadducees probably said a thing here. I think probably some of the Pharisees, some of the scribes said this. This is the response we see, Luke 20, verse 39. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. Why would they say that? Verse 40 tells us, For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. They're going to give up. They're throwing their hands up, right? Again, I don't think the Sadducees spoke up. They just wanted to make Jesus look bad. That's why they contrived this unlikely scenario, the widow with seven husbands. But, but I would make the case because of how Luke records this, even these Pharisees who said that Jesus spoke well, I don't think they meant it. I don't think they were saying it for the right reasons. I mean, they agreed that the resurrection is real. They're on the same page there. The Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed. But the text says these religious leaders didn't have the courage to question Jesus anymore about anything which means they don't want to grasp the truth and try to apply it in their lives. And this is the issue we're going to face today with people who want to argue with us over core doctrinal issues. This is the issue with the person who says they love God and yet they don't submit to God's teaching from his word. We have to ask, does that person truly love God? We don't see hearts the way God does, praise the Lord, but, but it looks like they just want to do what they want to do. And people like that, I don't know if you've had this opportunity or not, I've had it often, they give up talking about doctrine after a while because the doctrine challenges what they want to do. So they would rather not question why God would allow trials in their lives. Why would God place us in a trial? Why would God fearfully and wonderfully wire us in such a way that we have to endure trials? When we know the, the story of the Bible teaches us over and over that God allows those trials in our lives so that we'll grow so that we'll love him more, so we'll bring him the glory he's worthy of, both in this life and in the life to come. So church, I beg you, don't fall into that trap of sacrificing the truth of God's word on this altar of tolerance and unity. Now practically, yes, we shouldn't divide over minor issues. There are areas in the Bible where honestly we can agree to disagree. But we can't say we truly love people the way God loves them if we're not willing to gently but firmly confront foundational doctrinal error. That's what Jesus does in this passage. We've got to love folks enough to tell them the truth. A great article I read several years ago about a, a guy named Penn Gillette, and you probably know that name. He's a magician and a comedian, part of the group Penn and Teller. They've got a big act in Vegas. Penn Gillette is a self-pronounced atheist. He himself does not profess faith in God. But he was quoted in a magazine article several years ago. He was on an airline flight, and the person sitting next to him was a bold Christ follower and presented the gospel to him. And Pendulette didn't profess faith in Jesus at that point in time. But, but he had an interview scheduled right after that, and, and he told this interviewer, personally, I don't respect Christians who don't share the gospel. You hear that? I don't respect Christians who don't share the gospel. He says, I don't believe the gospel story is true, but if they believe it, if someone says they're a Christ follower, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell somebody the gospel? If you believe everlasting life is possible, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them about it? 
I believe one day Pendulette will be a Christ follower. I, I think that's too wise and discerning a statement. God's going to get him, I think. But, but the doctrinal question comes up here. If we truly love God and we're having a conversation with someone who's in doctrinal error, if we wind up on the plane and we're sitting there and we, we share the gospel with somebody because they say, well, I've, I'm 100% sure I can work my way to heaven, and we know sitting in the next chair they can't, how much do we have to hate that person? To not tell them the truth. That's what it comes down to. Why would we not tell them? Is it because we're not sure about the truth in some areas? Well, let's pray, let's read, let's study, let's be better prepared to address those issues. And there may be some issues, I get it, if we have a real heart for people and we're not 100% sure how to address the issue, then just say, hey, I'm not 100% sure on that, but can I hook you up with my pastor? Can I hook you up with a ministry leader in my church? Somebody else. But if we don't address this doctrinal error because we don't want to offend someone, we're afraid we're going to hurt somebody's feelings, we want to be tolerant, we think we can just sit around and hold hands and sing kumbaya, then we might as well rip this passage in Luke out and throw it out of our Bible. That's not the way Jesus did it. He loved people enough to confront the error. Let me close with this. I want to share a quote from one of my favorite theologians, a guy named A.W. Tozer. I'll tell you this, Tozer wrote this at least 60 years ago. It's true then, it's probably more true now. He wrote, we've gotten accustomed to the blurred puffs of gray fog that pass for doctrine in churches and expect nothing better. From some previously unimpeachable sources are now coming vague statements consisting of a milky mixture of scripture, science, and human sentiment that is true to none of its ingredients because each one is working to cancel the others out. Little by little, Christians these days are being brainwashed one evidence is that increasing numbers of them are becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. They say they believe, but their beliefs have been so diluted as to be impossible of clear definition. Here's how he ends the quote. Moral power has always accompanied definite beliefs. Great saints have always been dogmatic. We need to return to a gentle dogmatism that smiles and loves while it stands stubborn and firm on the word of God because that lives and abides forever. Amen? Church, will we do it? Will we love people enough to tell them the truth? It's the way Jesus did. God bless you guys. I love you. Let's pray. Daddy, help us. We need you so desperately in every facet of our lives. But God, in this one, we, help us to be bold and loving with the truth. God, help us to not wade in looking for doctrinal fights. God, help us to confront doctrinal error because we believe it's the most loving thing we can possibly do. It's what we see your son do in this passage. And God, we live in a world that has lost its course in so many ways. God, how can we be your ambassadors? How can we be your witnesses, not in a way where we'd ever prove we're right in an argument. But God, where we would point to the fact that you're holy and loving and pure and truth. God, help us to be your church. Lord, we love you and we praise you. 
We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.